Okay, hello everyone. Uh, today we are joined by uh, Eric Gustafson, the founder and director of EPIC, which is a, uh, a nonprofit based in Washington, D.C., and it stands for Education for Peace in Iraq Center. Eric has been involved on Iraq issues for decades, and he'll tell us more about it. Um, Eric uh, spent some time there uh, with the U.S. military uh, in the 90s uh, and then became an activist uh, to on, on Iraq issues, uh, starting with sanctions and then uh, up until today. There's always been one issue after another, unfortunately. The modern history of Iraq, um, even though it's the oldest, uh, one of the oldest, if not the oldest civilization on earth, its modern history has been relatively uh, painful. Um, but we hope to have some good news today. Eric, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be with you, Taro and Tamago. All right. So uh, talk to us about your latest report um, on Iraq, which you published on your website, and we will link to it in the, in the episode description. So the report focuses on the Tishrei movement. This is a protest, a nonviolent protest movement that has been really uh, pressing for major reforms, political reforms of Iraq. And the protests were new. Um, there's been major protests in Iraq since 2011. But in October 2019, uh, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people taking to the streets. And the, the demands were quite different. Instead of just calling for more jobs or uh, better public services, they were asking for a complete reform of the political system. Um, it, was a, it was a grassroots movement uh, in Baghdad, across cities in the South. And um, it really challenged the uh, establishment, the political establishment in Iraq, more than anything has, has challenged the establishment up to date. Um, it led to the, um, the uh, removal of the prime minister. Um, he was forced to resign in December. And then um, the scheduling of early elections and the passage of a new electoral law. Um, and the early elections, of course, were just held um, this past October. Um, so we wanted to better understand um, the nature of the movement, its power, its potential, and um, how that, how increasingly we're seeing change come to Iraq uh, from the bottom up, not from elites down, but from the bottom up. We also felt that there was a need to do this kind of research because it, typically, if you look at all the think tanks and you know the policy papers that are out there, um, usually there's a focus on the political elites. Um, you'll have a delegation will go to Baghdad and meet with the Speaker of Parliament and the Prime Minister and the heads of political parties. But it's rare that you have the kind of research that tries to better understand a social movement and how that's bringing uh, change to Iraq. So that's what we sought out to do. And it was a fascinating year of research. Um, we, we, yes, go ahead. Yeah, so just maybe give the audience a little bit of a background on what kind of government Iraq has. What is the structure of the government? And when was it founded, this, this, this Republican uh, Democratic government? Well, so, it, I mean, it, there's a there's a long history, of course. We can go all the way back to 1958 and the establishment of the Iraqi Republic. Um, and but kind of uh, looking at what the events of 2003. So you had the removal of Saddam Hussein, and then you had a very uh, an expedited political transition that was far from perfect. It basically thrust a lot of um, these exiled political parties. Um, 
and individuals into positions of power. And as soon as they had that, those positions of power, they didn't want to give up that power. Um, so even though it's intended to be a, um, you know, a, a democracy, um, it is far from, I think, um, the ideals of a democracy. You have political parties that have way too much control and power over the state. Um, and you have the typical uh, case of corruption and you know, state-sanctioned corruption, um, the capturing of state institutions and the use of those institutions by political parties for their own gains. Um, so oftentimes you look at the government formation process in Iraq. Um, and again, it's a, it's a parliamentary system. I should mention that too. It's a, so um, you'll have a government uh, formation process where they'll create a unity government and they'll divide up the, the spoils, you know, um, the solderists, you know, you get the health ministry. Um, FATA, you know, you get the PMF uh, ministry. And that once those political parties are in charge of those ministries, they'll essentially give out contracts and jobs to the party faithful. Um, so it's, it's deeply problematic because it's not serving the common good. Right. Um, and I do want to, at some point, we can talk a little bit about this, but uh, one of the things that we've increasingly been thinking about is frameworks and having a clear framework of understanding um, how the corruption occurs um, and how to address it directly okay. or to throughout militia violence and how they use coercion and how you begin to address those kinds of issues too. Okay, so you have a government, um, a parliamentary government, um, but you also have a president who's um, a member of the Kurdish community and the prime minister who's generally, but not necessarily a Shia, right? Since 2003, right. but you have a Sunni community, you have Christians, you have a lot of minorities in Iraq. Can you give us a little bit of a, a feel for what, what Iraqi society looks like in that yes, sense? So, yeah, so what you're describing, so this was early on in, um, you know, after 2003, uh, when there was this rushed political transition, one of the ways that I think the U.S. and um, and others, but it is primarily the U.S. leading the political transition, um, sought to uh, ensure the peace was to ensure that all of the major uh, political parties had some positions. Or the way that the um, Americans often would talk about it, it was also ensuring all of the major communities would have positions of power within the government. Um, that essentially it's it's often referred to as the Mohassasa system, um, and it, it means that yes, you'll have um, an Iraqi Kurd will be the president, uh, Iraqi um, Sunni Arab will be the Speaker of Parliament, and the Prime Minister will go to a member of the Shia community. Um, it's the, the problem is is that that it's only made the situation worse in terms of corruption. While it might have been a temporary solution, in the long term, um, it has, you know, that very system that was designed to keep Iraq together is now tearing the country apart. Mm. Um, Iraqis are fed up. And a lot of, when you look at the Tishreen movement, um, October 2019, it was, it was, they want complete reform and they want to abolish the Mohassasa system. They want to see um, these institutions serve the common good and for the people in positions of power to serve the common good and not right. to serve the what just one particular community or another. So 
let's fast forward a little bit to the latest elections in October uh, 2021, just uh, you know, uh, last month, basically. What were the results um, and, and how did the Tishreen movement impact those results in your opinion? Well, so the, the elections that just happened in October are really fascinating. Um, it, I think that the, a lot of the media headlines kind of missed the point. Um, the, the focus was on the seats that the major uh, political parties won and they weren't looking at the number of votes. And if you look at that, um, it's quite interesting to compare 2018 to 2021. So let me just kind of start with, with to, for the context, talking about the 2018 elections. The 2018 elections, um, the international community was not um, as much involved. Um, there wasn't any mission from the UN or the EU to observe and monitor those elections. Uh, instead, it was kind of left up to the embassies to have their own you know, people out um, nominally offering some monitoring and oversight, but there was widespread fraud. And it to, I mean, just, just imagine this. It was so bad that there, were, there was a, the courts of Iraq um, uh, did uh, decide that there needed to be a recount. And then in the midst of the recount, one of the big warehouses holding ballots in Baghdad uh, went up in flames. I mean, that's how bad the fraud was with the 2018 elections. Now, that all said, you know, you can still kind of look at it, even though we know that there was fraud, and that probably accounts for perhaps hundreds of thousands of ballots, um, you can still look at the number of votes that the major political parties won, and then compare it to the 2021 elections. Now, in 2021, the difference is that the, the UN sent a mission um, that had the mandate of the Security Council behind it to observe the elections. You had um, a lot of assistance given to IHEC, and you had EU sending a large um, observation mission. And so there was no, there was very little room for the kind of fraud that happened in 2018. Um, the other big difference between 2018 and 2021 is in 2018, uh, the way that the elections were run, it was under the previous electoral law where each of Iraq's 18 governorates were treated as a single voting district. Um, and now in 2021, Iraq was divided up into 83 smaller voting districts. In 2018, um, if you, um, that you basically had semi-open party lists uh, where you had, could have large coalitions uh, running um, you know, for, for seats uh, of parliament. And then if something happens, say three of your people who were the top vote getters uh, suddenly decide that they don't wanna be members of parliament, you can transfer those votes to others. Um, if, if they died, you can transfer them to others. In 2021, it was all based on single individual candidates running and non-transferable votes. So a very different system. Um, and, but this is what's remarkable. In 2021, you had the Tishreen and independent candidates winning more than 2 million votes and 45 seats of parliament. If you look at all of the, and that's the first to have a true opposition winning that many seats in parliament. Meanwhile, if you look at all the major parties, say the Sadrists, the Sadrists went from getting 1.49 uh, million votes in 2018 to 885,000 votes in 2021. So the Sadrists go down and all the other major parties, similar um, loss of votes. All right, so let me just clarify a couple of things. What's the total number of seats in the parliament? 
the, the total number, I believe it's uh, 329 seats, if I okay. remember right. All right, so they won over 10, let's say 15% of, of the seats on, in their first thing. Um, the other, uh, what was the total number of votes cast? <clears throat> the, the voter turnout was actually lower this time than previously. The mm -hmm. So that, that, that's one of the issues that I think continues to be a challenge. Um, hopefully four years from now, there'll be much stronger voter turnout mm. because the, the international presence in moderating the elections, I mean, and all of what um, have, have been found from the observation teams, I mean, it was uh, technically a well-organized election. Um, there's still issues leading up to the elections in terms of um, problems with everybody being able to get registered to vote or candidates and political parties being able to get registered to vote or I mean, to register to run in the elections. So there were still like a number of issues there, but in terms of the election day, um, it was a huge improvement mm. to 2018. Um, and so hopefully there'll be more confidence if you have that same kind of international presence in overseeing the elections, um, there'll be more confidence and more young people will then turn out to vote four years from now. Um, but in terms of the total number, um, I'd say it was around um, two, three, four, five, between five to six million people voted in this election. But if if the Tishreen movement won two million votes, that would be one third. Yeah, because so the Sadrists won uh, 885,000 votes. Uh, Maliki, which was the second top vote getter, got 520,000. The third no, but top. My, my, my question is like, why, if they won one third of the total votes, why wouldn't they win one third of parliament? Because of the way that, so there's a lot of vote wastage. This, this okay. is the thing to understand. So if you have 83 districts and say independent candidates and Tishreen candidates are running five candidates in a single district, then it divides up a lot of those votes. So mm -hmm. even though they had that total number of votes, you have to then look at who actually won the seats. Okay. Um, and the, the, the one thing to keep in mind, this is the thing about the Sadrists. So the Sadrists won 73 seats, even though they, so if you look at 2018, they had 1.5 million votes and they won 54 seats. Then in 2021, they um, win 885,000 votes and they win 73 seats. Yeah, that's odd. Yeah, the, the part of the reason is that the Sadrists um, were highly organized and they had, they even had a, um, a lot of their members had an app that told them where to go to vote and what candidate to vote for. So they were able to ensure that there was a lot less votes wasted mm -hmm. and they were able to divide up the votes when they knew that they could win two seats in a district or even three districts. When so are the next? They were what? able to win. Okay. When are the next elections? The next elections will be in four years. Okay. So how is the political establishment in Iraq reacting to this relatively impressive uh, change in, in the makeup of their parliament? I mean, sadly, so far in the government formation process, not a whole lot has changed. Um, there has been some, you know, I mean, Fatah, of course, they lost a lot. They went from having winning 25 um, seats I'm, I'm sorry, they went from winning 48 seats in 2018 to winning only 16 seats in the 2021 elections. And now, what, so, what is Fatah? Who are Fatah? 
Fatah is the, it's basically the coalition of militias, um, oh. Iraq-backed militias. Um, so they're one of the big problems when it comes to, to um, the situation in Iraq. These are militias that uh, carry out the, uh, you know, human rights violations with impunity. Um, they've assassinated activists. Uh, they are, they've been implicated in um, having attempted an assassination of Iraq's prime minister. Um, and still, the Iraqi government is not able to carry out the investigations and then prosecute the individuals who are involved in these crimes. Um, so it's a, it's a big problem. And part of it is because they're entrenched within the political system. I mean, they're literally part of the interior ministry. Um, so, but with um, Fatah, they, because they lost so many seats, um, they've been the ones that have been protesting and crying foul and ironically uh, claiming that there's been fraud with these elections. Um, and so there's been um, kind of a lot of problems with them, but a lot of what they're doing seems to be about leverage. They're creating, um, they're protesting and uh, even threatening violence, all in a gambit to have the same piece of the pie that they had um, in the government formation process in the, after the 2018 elections. Even though they have much fewer seats. Yeah, even though they have much fewer seats. Exactly. But they, they may succeed because they're backed by Iran, which is a neighbor of Iraq. And Iran has a significant influence um, in Iraq through these groups and, and other means. Is that correct? Yeah, so, so Iran um, can kind of uh, pressure things, but Iran hasn't been in as doesn't seem to have been as directly involved this time around as previously. So, I mean, there's a lot of there's been changes. Um, you know, one, there was the assassination of Soleimani, um, who was kind of the main guy um, that was, you know, connected with the Ar Iranian Republican Guard and has been was the one who really had the charisma um, and the political savvy to coordinate all of these militias um, that Iran is backing in Iraq. He's no longer part of the equation. And the guy that replaced him doesn't seem to be fully up to the task. We've seen the militias operate kind of more um, in a disorganized fashion, um, which suggests that there's less command and control coming from Tehran these days. Um, also, it's not like before where there was this direct involvement, you know, where you had people like Brett McGurk from the US. Um, he was kind of the lead ambassador from the US who was often uh, talking with all the political parties during the government formation process, like in 2018. This time you don't, you have, you don't have that. Um, so uh, yeah, but the one thing that is different this time, which will be very interesting, previously the government formation process was all about creating a unity government. This time, I think what we'll see is the formation of a majority government where there'll still be an opposition. Because to date, the independent bloc, these are the independent members of parliament who were elected, and the Tishreen parties, um, prim primarily Imtadad, and even this other independent party out of Najaf that's connected to the clergy, but is independent from those traditional Shia political parties, they all are um, to date talking about not wanting to be part of the government and wanting to be part of an opposition within parliament. Hmm. And so how do you feel about that? I think it's a, I think it's progress. I think okay. that, I think that 
any parliamentary system benefits from having an opposition. Um, and these are members of parliament who, that have the powers of parliamentarians to call people forward, to call for evidence, uh, hearings, and to play the role that a traditional opposition can play um, to help ensure that there's greater transparency and accountability and responsiveness from the government. Can you tell us more about the current prime minister? Uh, do you think he's going to retain his seat? And also tell us maybe a bit more about the assassination attempt, which was quite recent. And sure. that was a bit, uh, yeah, that was a bit of a, a complication there, right? I mean, the, the potential would yep. have been quite larger, but it seems like he's handling it very quietly. Yeah. So, so uh, Prime Minister Kadami, uh, Prime Minister Kadami was came in to replace the um, the Prime Minister who w had to resign, who was forced by the protest to resign right. back in December uh, 2019. Right. So he's been the Prime Minister. He actually didn't. Um, he wasn't seated in that position until months later. I think it was May or so. Um, he, he comes from an intelligence background, but previously to that, he was a journalist. Um, and I think that he does, um, you know, I think he does have some, like he wants to have reform. And there were even some Iraqis who I respect um, who served as an advisor to him. So I think that there was clearly, and like, I think he has an interest to see reforms happen. But he's not, he's not someone who has his own political party, and he certainly doesn't have his own militia, which is different from a lot of the other political actors he has to deal with. Um, so there's limits in terms of what he can do. And also, again, because of the way that the political system has been set up. I mean, he came in kind of in this interim role. Um, now, if he ends up being the prime minister as a, part of a majority government, um, where there's an opposition as well in parliament, there might be a very interesting new dynamic um, that will play out in Iraq. Um, so I think that he does have a chance of being uh, seated as a new prime minister. Um, and I think that ironically, the assassination attempt actually might have increased his chances of becoming the next prime minister, um, ironically. Uh, now the assassination attempt, so this happened um, uh, not too long ago, I wanna say um, just, a couple of weeks ago, right? I mean, it was recent. And the, you know, in terms of who was likely involved, um, I think with Occam's razor, we can assume Iran-backed militias were involved. Was Tehran, did Tehran order the assassination attempt? That's unclear. Um, as I said, there isn't as much command and control these days, um, but I wouldn't rule it out and we don't have the evidence. What is concerning is that the the Iraqi government, which has been carrying out an investigation, hasn't been really clear and hasn't invited the Americans or others, even you know the UN, the Brits or others. Many countries have offered to help with the investigation, but they, um, the uh, government of Prime Minister Kadami is saying, no, we'll handle this investigation ourselves. Um, so that's not encouraging. And uh, so far, you know, when they were supposed to report findings, it hasn't been, um, it remains ambiguous. And that's, I think that there should have been plenty of evidence to be able to figure out who carried out the attack. Has anyone been arrested? No. I, yeah. I, I mean, I haven't checked the news lately, but, um, but from the last 48 hours, I don't think anybody's been arrested. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, and, the, you know, there's, in terms of the militias that are likeliest involved, uh, Kitab Hezbollah, um, Masayb al-Haq, those are the two likeliest uh, mm -hmm. suspects. And then there's smaller militias as well that may have been involved in, um, uh, so, yeah. yeah so yeah. how do you feel that will impact the, the government formation process, this assassination I mean, attempt? I mean, the, the problem is, is that these militias, they exercise too much power. And um, because they do have the ability to use coercive power. Um, and so, you know, the, the, and the prime minister, I, again, I don't think uh, feels safe enough um, to go after these militias directly. I mean, you know, there have been some, I, I can't say that there haven't been any arrests or uh, prosecutions, because if you look at the number of assassinations that have occurred, um, there have been a couple cases where individuals have been sentenced. Um, but, you know, in terms of when you look at the number of assassination crime committed or this latest assassination attempt, uh, there's far too many people um, that, I mean, the investigations just don't seem to go anywhere. So here's my, I'm a bit confused about something. You've, you've just had parliamentary elections, and that means that you may have a change in the prime minister. You have a prime minister who's not that powerful, doesn't have that much influence. So why try to assassinate him? Why not just get rid of him through the political process or just keep him since he's not that effective or can't be that effective? What's the point of assassinating him? Well, there's, I mean, one of the um, stories out there is that it appears that Iran might be okay if, if uh, Kadami continues as in the premiership. And um, so that could be part of what's going on, that, you know, some militia acted against that because they're trying to derail that process. Um, it's really unclear. I mean, there's not, you know, there's not a lot of logic. I know that Oseb al-Haq and uh, Kateb Hezbollah, the two, these two particularly um, aggressive militias that have been implicated in attacks on American forces, um, and you know, assassinations of activists. I know that they particularly don't want to see Kadami continue as, as a prime minister. Um, so, but again, like the logic, you know, why they would carry it out, it's still unclear. It seems like, I mean, it clearly backfired and I think it wouldn't have ta taken a whole lot of thought to recognize that this is likely what would have happened. So, um... What is the nature of the U.S. presence now in Iraq, and what kind of influence does the U.S. government have uh, currently uh, over Iraqi affairs? Um, so the the U.S. is uh, basically like under the current administration, the Biden administration. The plan is to phase out all uh, combat, any combat role for the U.S. forces in Iraq um, by the end of this year. Uh, the role that they've been largely playing, though, to date, um, this year, has been advisory. And I think that that's a role that will continue to be played. Um, there's a lot of gaps when it comes to Iraq's um, security institutions and carrying out the kind of uh, complicated um, operations necessary to continue to um, address ISIS, which is still a problem in Iraq. Um, and so... You know, there's a role in terms of logistics, advisory role that I think that, um, and even intelligence, sharing intelligence, that the U.S. Um, 
that it's a vital role that the U.S. can continue to play and that I think uh, Iraqi security forces would like to see the U.S. continue to play. Um, so I think that can be expected. The other role, I think, is that the U.S. Um, can play an important role when it comes to ensuring free and fair elections. Um, the fact that there was a Security Council mandate behind the observation mission had a, a lot to do with the U.S. Um, there's also the role of US, that U.S. aid and um, various agencies can play in working to improve governance. Um, and I can give you a really interesting example of this. Um, so, you know, this comes, this gets into a framework and understanding the framework of how good governance works. Um, if you think about it, you know, with the Iraqi system, you have the parliament, which is the legislative role, you have the courts, the legal role, and then you have the executive. And in addition to that, you have the career professionals who are all about, um, like the technocrats, the people that are there to just carry out the functions of these agencies. Right now, the problem is, is that you look at a ministry and they're essentially all political appointees, right? It's a political party staffing it with all their people and it doesn't function well that way. Um, under the Iraqi constitution, it was established that there'd be what's known as a civil service council that would um, establish the rules of how ministries would hire their people. And it was all about merit and you know, making sure that they could do the technical reasoning that to carry out um, their jobs. Uh, and not political reasoning, but technical reasoning. And so um, the, the, even though it was established in the constitution, which was passed by Iraq in 2005, uh, it wasn't the, a law wasn't passed to establish that um, civil service council until 2009. And it wasn't seated with people, with staff until 2019. Well, if you think about it, what was happening in 2019? The mass protests. So it was a result of the mass protests that finally it was staffed. But to date, even though it's now staffed, it doesn't have the kind of um, authorizing power from parliament to be able to carry out its job. So there's, there's opportunities where the US, the international community, Japan, um, other countries can really play a, an important role in empowering the parliament to pass the kinds of laws so that you can start to have those kinds of improvements in governance. Um, and the, the civil service council can start really doing its job. How do you think Japan can influence policy in Iraq? Well, one of the things that I've heard, and I and this is from just talking with some of the Iraqis that I know who have um, do contracting um, in Baghdad, um, and they've talked about some of the contracts they've had with the Japanese government. Um, what, what they've been actually uh, impressed in the way that Japan goes about doing its development work in Iraq, um, that they really have a process that helps ensure that there, there isn't corruption. Now it's a little, um, sometimes it means going directly through um, the contractor and not through the ministry. But I mean, given that the problem with the ministries right now, it kind of makes sense that you'd, you'd get the clearance from the ministry to say, establish this um, power plant, but then you'd work, but then the Japanese government would um, have a direct connection in transferring funds directly to the contractor that then does the job. So there's, and I, I mean, I'm, I, again, I don't know too much about this, but it's just from talking with some of these Iraqi contractors um, who 
have been so frustrated because even that, even the fact that um, there's a better process, because the ministries don't get any cut, sometimes the ministries will sit on these approvals for years. Um, so it creates these, these delays. But at the same time, at least when the work is actually being done and the funds are being exchanged, um, there's less room for corruption as a result of the way Japan seems to be going about doing the contracting. Okay, so what do you think is going to happen in Iraq in the next few years, uh, particularly uh, in terms of the protest movement and in terms of this new young generation of Iraqis that are demanding better governance? Are you optimistic or pessimistic? I'm, I'm somewhat optimistic, um, but I also uh, believe that it's becoming more and more urgent. Um, so if, if we were to take a step back and look at the big picture, you have a country that's growing rapidly in population about 500,000 young people are entering the workforce each year. And when you look at the way the Iraqi government is set up, it's, um, it's a bloated public sector that really can't create any more jobs. Um, you know, you have a, it, the country depends on a dying industry, fossil fuels, um, and it's not, it's not sustainable. Any way you look at it, it's not sustainable. And so I think young people recognize that. That's why they're so frustrated and they wanna see the change happen much more rapidly. And it does create pressure where I think change will have to happen in Iraq. Um, one just hopes that it's done through a democratic process um, you know, where there's a greater sense of stability. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, I would say that I, I have some hopes also the fact that the last election, just the outcome, for the first time you have 2 million votes for independents and, and opposition parties. I mean, and a true homegrown opposition. Yeah. Um, extremely exciting, the fact that they now have seats, 45 seats in parliament. Um, I think, that, and, and that they were able to achieve that with the lowest uh, voter turnout that Iraq has ever seen because of young people staying home and being so frustrated. Um, if you can, I think that if we can start to see progress where there's less impunity for militias carrying out violence, let, you know, where you see less assassinations, where the elections once again are monitored by the international community and there's greater faith in those elections and you have higher voter turnout. And you imagine you know, the, these independents and these um, opposition parties, they're one of the things that have struck me when we were doing the research and we were talking with um, the heads of, of some of these um, opposition parties is that they weren't thinking in terms of, the, of these elections, they were really looking at the long term. They were looking at the next election cycle and the one after that. And nice. so as they become more organized, if they get to be as organized as the Sauterists are, and they have like an app and they're getting <laughs> right. their people out to the polls, um, then I think we can see a sweep. Uh, we could see half the seats go to opposition. But it's also a cultural change in the, in the politics of Iraq. I mean, that's, that's just as important, right? Um, so you mentioned fossil fuels, which kind of brings me to my last question. Um, let's talk about climate change. Our last episode was about climate change and COP26 in, uh, in Scotland. Um, tell us about uh, climate change in Iraq and what's going on there. Well, so, I mean, Iraq, uh, in when you look at Iraq compared to other countries, the United States and others, um, they aren't um, disproportionately contributing more to greenhouse gases. Now, of course, they're 
exporting oil, which is fueling the climate crisis. Um, but within Iraq, um, they're not contributing as much um, to the problem in terms of greenhouse emissions as the United States and other major powers, China and others. Um, the, that said, uh, Iraq is still committed to the Paris Accords. Um, they do have an agreement. They've been working with UNDP and others uh, to begin to cut emissions um, over the next 30 years. I believe they're looking to cut emissions by one to 2%. And keeping in mind, of course, that's during a population growth. So cutting emissions by a few percentage points while your population is growing show means that proportionately each individual is contributing far less to in terms of a carbon footprint. Um, there's also work to begin to transition. Um, Iraq, I think, is a great place for solar energy, right? <laughs> and, and even wind energy. Um, so there's, there's, I think, huge opportunities to begin to um, diversify the economy and begin to um, go in a, in a um, reduce the, you know, go toward a carbon-free economy um, and transition that way. But what's been exciting, um, well, and actually, let me just make this point also. When it does come to climate change, Iraq is being impacted by climate change far more than other countries. So temperatures are rising in Iraq faster than the average temperature is rising around the world. Um, you, the highest recorded temperature uh, on the books was recorded in, um, in the southern marshes of Iraq last year, the highest temperature ever recorded. Um, you also, if you look at the water flows in Iraq and uh, diminished rainfall, I believe the water flow in Iraq is about, has, been, has dropped by a third since the 1970s. Um, so this is becoming a huge problem. You see drought, the agricultural belt in Iraq is shrinking, which is gonna create even more problems in terms of um, food security. Um, so there's a tremendous need to not only fight climate change, but to also mitigate the impact that climate change is ha having, uh, particularly on the most vulnerable in Iraq. Um, so there are uh, Iraqi civil society organizations, some amazing individuals and organizations like um, the Iraq Water Keepers and uh, Humat Dijla or Save the Tigris. Um, these organizations are working uh, to press uh, pressure the Iraqi government to do more, um, or even the Kurdish government in the in the Kurdistan region uh, to do more to clean water to um, address uh, the need to clean water. Like if you look at all of the major cities in Iraq, um, after 2003, a lot of the infrastructure was destroyed, including water treatment facilities. And those water treatment facilities to this day are still not on back online and functioning. And so you have raw sewage being dumped into the rivers. Um, so there's a, there's a tremendous need and there's a growing number of Iraqis, young people um, who are joining the um, environmental movement in Iraq and are um, joining the climate action movement globally. Um, and so one of the things that we're excited about doing is we're gonna be working more and more with those individuals and organizations to ensure that their voices are being heard among Iraqis because they can help raise awareness and then also ensure that Iraqis are out front in leading the efforts to um, address climate change in Iraq. That's awesome. Uh, so Eric, uh, we ask every guest um, this this thing. Is there, do you want to discuss anything or mention anything that we haven't asked you about? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I would say just the, the kind of a closing thoughts is that I think that there's a tendency to look at Iraq as a war. And certainly here in the United States, that's the tendency. Um, Americans, when they hear Iraq, they think of the Iraq war. And you know, you, if you do a Google search for Iraq, you're gonna see all these images. Um, there's so much more to the story. Um, it is, we're talking about a country with a rich history, uh, the cultural diversity, the, the, I mean, it's, I enjoy going every time I go to Iraq. I love, I love spending time there. Um, you know, the, whether so it's, you, you were there the first time, what, what year were you there? The, well, the first time I was there. So during the 91 Gulf war, I was right. in Saudi Arabia. I never entered. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I was always. Um, I mean, I would got to Kuwait City, but I didn't go further than Kuwait City. Um, the first time I actually traveled to Iraq would have been in the summer of 1997, okay. and that was on a humanitarian fact-finding mission to witness the impact that uh, international sanctions were having, as well as the regime right. on ordinary Iraqis. Um, and then I went again in uh, 1998. And then um, it was a number of years before I returned. Um, so it was long after the 2003 uh, war before right. I returned. Um, so and then, but recently yeah, I mean, I've been I'm curious years. to know, like, what's what are some of the biggest changes you've seen from 1997 to uh, 2021? I mean, so so when I went to Baghdad, I was in Baghdad um, just a couple years ago. And so having been in Baghdad in 1997 and 1998, and then going back in, um, you know, just a couple of years ago, uh, there was, I would say um, more, there was more traffic in a lot of the areas that I went. Um, and, you know, it, it was hard because when I went in 1997 and 98, I mean, it was, under the regime, it's not like I had freedom of movement, um, so right. I wasn't able to really like see as much of the city as I would have liked. Um, the, you know, there was still um, a lot of things that I saw in Baghdad a couple of years ago that were encouraging. For example, I saw I went to um, kind of a, a place that's like um, a, a workshare place. Um, it's, I'm trying to remember, oh, it's called The Station, The Station. And you had um, lots of little startups and you had right. social venture um, initiatives. And it was very encouraging to see just young people um, doing all kinds of things. I saw there's a lot of art that you can see um, in Baghdad these days. And, you know, there's a lot of like, it was nice just to walk around. I mean, there were fears it wasn't that long ago that there'd be bombings in Baghdad on a regular basis. But when I was there a couple of years ago, um, I was able to go a number of places and I would ask around, when's the last time there was any incident in this neighborhood? And they said, oh, it hasn't been, it, you know, that was like 10 years ago. Um, so, so there was been, you know, there was improvement, I think, in the last 10 years in terms of security in some of the areas. But there's still sadly attacks. I mean, when I was there two years ago, I was in the Karada area, and there was an attack um, just within the last year in the Karada area. Um, so it's still, unfortunately, a, a challenge. But it's much better than people imagine, basically. It's much more lively. Yeah, yeah exactly. And when I go, I mean, I'm often uh, go to Erbil, and I'll sometimes travel to other places like Mosul. 
And to be honest, I've never been in any situation where I felt in danger. Um, you know, you, I take precautions and I rely on the right people. Um, but, you know, like amazing hospitality. Uh, I mean, I still remember going to Mosul uh, shortly after it was liberated. And some young people, um, I was visiting a, a health clinic um, and some young people came in and said, oh, you know, come, come with us, come with us. And they took us around the corner to this art institute that had been bombed um, because ISIS had been using it. And so it's just rubble. And then right there, they put on this performance where it was kind of the, you know, what do you call it? It's like this performance where it's all done with music and dance and motion to be able to tell a story. And they told the story of Mosul, of what it was like when they came and what it was like when they were freed and what their hopes are for the future, all in kind of this interpretive dance. And it was beautiful. And I mean, that's, that, that's what I think of when I think of Iraq. It's that kind of um, creative spirit and energy and hospitality. Um, so, right. yeah. This is a very good note to, to end on. We like to end on positive, uh, optimistic notes. <laughs> yes, yes. All right, thank you so much, Eric. Yeah, it's a pleasure, Tara and Tamago. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Global with your host, Tamago and Kangaku Taro. See you next time. Bye-bye.